Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the Cabrigal clan of the Darug Nation, who are the traditional custodians of this land we are meeting on today. We also pay our respects to the elders past, present and future of the Darug Nation. Hey friends, welcome to our podcast, A Seat at Our Table. Candid conversations about our Asian Australian experiences in the creative industry. I'm Tracy. I'm Wendy. We We saved you a seat. Come Come join join us. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have um, a guest on the potty. We've got Daniel, who is a psychologist practicing in Western Sydney since 2006. Daniel is a clinical supervisor, trainer, and speaker on the topic of well-being, adolescent mental health, and transcultural mental health. Daniel is also currently the Deputy Commissioner for the New South Wales Mental Health Commission. Um, So welcome, Daniel. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome. Very much. Great to be here. In this episode, we're going to get to know Daniel and his practice. We will also discuss issues affecting young people and the Western Sydney community, and we will share tips on what we can do for our mental health. So to kick us off, do you want to tell us about your cultural background and what your childhood was like? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, so my mum is Vietnamese and my name doesn't really reveal it. uh, (laughs) But um, my dad was born in Australia, but has Scottish and English background. So hence the mix. But my mum came to Australia during the uh, Vietnam War uh, and uh, only came when she was young, about 17 years, 18 years old, met my dad here. Uh, So I grew up in Penrith in uh, Cranebrook, actually. At the time, it was much more rural. And uh, I suppose uh, when I grew up, it was largely um, Australian-born, a lot of uh, Anglo-Saxon people living in the area. And so I didn't really quite fit really anywhere. I didn't quite look Vietnamese. I didn't quite look Australian-born, white Australian. So I kind of stood out. Uh, quite a bit. Uh, that was kind of good sometimes and less good. Uh, but where I was growing up, it, it, it did make me very different to other people. Yeah. So then what led you to, I guess, pursuing a career in psychology and where you are today? And I guess, has your mixed cultural identity affected that as well? Yeah, I suppose so. So uh, I suppose the thing that was important for me was that um, my mum's experiences. So my dad worked a lot. And when my mum came here, so if we go back a step and we think about what their journey was, I mean, many people have, um, many families have had this experience, but my my mum's family, after my grandfather died in Saigon, I have uh, 10 aunts and uncles. Wow. Pretty powerful grandmother. <laughs> my grandfather was a doctor in Saigon, but then uh, when he died, my family, for lots of reasons, sold everything and quickly got out of there and got on boats and then um, was shot at and, you know, almost like a Hollywood movie, really. Yeah. Uh, and it was pretty pretty full on. And then he make it eventually to Indonesia where uh, the boat that my mum and my family were on almost sank. And it was only because they started to take on water that the Indonesian Coast Guard took them on and, and they stayed on a refugee camp before eventually Australian... Uh, government came over and invited them to the country. But the reason I say all of that is because I think that for many of my family, including my mum, they themselves started developing a lot of mental health problems. Mm. Mm. Uh, They were impacted significantly by the trauma of that event. 
uh, my mum was, like I said earlier, she was in her teenage years, you know, during this whole period. She was studying poetry uh, oh. at university in Saigon, right? And same thing with my aunts. And I mean, imagine uh, the family, right? Like younger kids. My mum's about middle, like in the middle. She's not mm. the oldest. She's not the youngest. So like, like little kids mm. at the time. And my grandma and the whole family taking whatever they had the whole life uh, on a boat, right? So when they got here, my mom and a lot of people in my family, they had a lot of anxiety, yeah. a lot of trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know? And for me, I was the eldest born mm-hmm. in my family. And so my parents uh, changed my name to so I wouldn't be bullied, right? My right. It's Nam, N-A-M. Uh, as as the oldest in my mum's family, uh, she also met my dad, right, and they fell in love. But they were kind of like pushed to the side, you know, because mm. uh, it wasn't a good thing at the time for my mum to meet like a a, a white man, like an yeah. Australian. Yeah. And so they moved out from Caparmata, a denser park, you know, kind of uh, yeah. out to Penrith, right? Yeah. Right in the middle of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> our perspective at the time. And so uh, for me, when my dad was working and my mum was at, alone with me, uh, you know, I was kind of her carer at mm. times for a long time. She cared for me, but I cared for her. We cared for each other, right? Mm. And so I think I started to learn uh, pretty quickly uh, what it was like for my mum to have anxiety and to be mm. trauma. She was very scared of all animals, right? Like before I met my wife, I was never like an animal and an animal person she was like i don't want scared of like dogs and yeah. like there's no animals in the house it was messy it was you know everything <laughs> and so there was a certain lifestyle I, I had but then and so i'd often go to the doctors uh go to psychology appointments stuff like that with my mom and uh to be honest they didn't do a very good job for my mom mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh, for lots of reasons and we'll talk about maybe some of them later but my mom uh was very polite and um you know nodding all the time you know like what's going on i uh, just tell him i've got some headaches or yeah <laughs> something like this and so it never gets to the bottom never yeah. gets to the bottom of the problem and everybody that we saw they didn't really seem to want to listen to her mm. they just wanting to tell her what they think she should do they didn't seem to notice that i wasn't at school a lot uh, or wh- i don't know why they didn't use an interpreter or why you know yeah like where did i learn part of the language from i learned it from my mom i didn't go mm. to <laughs> i didn't go to study vietnamese or anything yeah from my perspective uh, I, I really wanted to do more i wanted to do better not only for people like my mom and my broader family but also for young people uh, yeah. like me uh does that answer your question there yeah it does and i'm interested like i guess you were quite young back then as well like how how did, did you did you understand that they were, I guess, mental health issues, oh, well, or like how do you, like how does that conversation play out between like I guess mother and son in terms of yeah? Well, I knew that my mom looked really off, like she would be mm. really sad sometimes, really down. Yeah. She would put on like um, this Vietnamese music, yeah. you know, uh, and I don't know about you guys, but. Oh my gosh, like the Vietnamese music that my mum listened to was always sounds so sad. Yeah, yeah. Always sad sounding, you yeah. know? And I think that she missed her country. Mm-hmm. Uh, she missed 
the people that she knew and her friends. And uh, I think that at times she felt really alone and isolated where we were. Uh, so a lot of my extended family at the time, they didn't support my mum's decision. And so that was even harder at times. I saw that she was unhappy at times mm. and she would be in bed a lot. She would sleep a lot. Yeah. You know? And I would look after myself sometimes. Mm. But don't get me wrong. Like if my mum listens, you know, like uh, my mum was <laughs> there for me. She, <laughs> yeah. She's like, what are you saying? It's funny. Yeah. It's funny when we have these chats because yeah. like, like there is always that part of me that says, oh, am I being disrespectful? Because, you know, like this is my experience. And of course, you know, like I love my mum. Mm-hmm. Mum has always been like, I wouldn't be here without yeah. my mum. Right? Yeah. But uh, at the same time, like, um, you know, nobody chooses. Like, if you're 16, 17 years old, you don't like say, "Oh, please attack my country and please let's yeah, like on exactly. a sinking boat." You know, like yeah. you don't choose these things. And this is the life that you get given. And actually, on that point, you know, I think my mum's like a superhero. Mm-hmm. Like, if you think uh, if you think about like all these superheroes, like Batman or Spider Man or stuff, you name a superhero that hasn't had significant adversity. Mm-hmm. They've learned from. And they've become like better versions of themselves. Like with Bruce Wayne, yeah, become, yeah. If he didn't witness like the the, the deaths, of yeah. Deaths, you know, like with Spider Man, Peter Parker. You know, I know he got bit by a spider, but he like he was adopted, right? Like by his yeah. aunt, his parents died too. So every superhero talks about these adversities which people learn from. And I think that my mom became such an amazing person because of her mm. experience that she learned. But then I also learned from her. And in some sense, I got, you know, how people do PhDs or study for years, right? I feel like my mum gave me an insider knowledge of what it was like to experience trauma or anxiety mm. for years. Like I was studying my PhD, you know, like as a joke, but yeah. my study for in anxiety since I was like six, seven years yeah. old. You know? mm. How did that all that like unfold and lead you to where you are today? Because obviously you have so many different like roles to play. Um, how did that journey go from you being a teenager to where you are now? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I ha- always felt like a, a lot of pressure, even though my mom and dad didn't really put any pressure on me. I mm-hmm. always felt like there was some kind of pressure maybe it was in my namesake like being the second born and I'm the eldest in my mum's family I always felt like um uh, I needed to help make it worthwhile that they'd given up so much that my mom had given up so much to come here that it wasn't her choice and I wanted to make her proud like she was studying poetry and when she came here like they gave her a job right at clean away which is a recycling plant that was far from what my mum had expected to do yeah yeah this was like my uncles and aunts like they just got in and they, they got a good work ethic they just got to, we've got to just survive and make this work so they're getting in there and they're doing all of these roles jobs that they would never have chosen yeah they were in vietnam right like my mm. my, my my grandfather was a doctor and he was encouraging uh, my aunts, uncles to go to uni, study, you know. And I think that because they weren't able to, I felt that I needed to do something more. I needed to do something meaningful. Mm. Um, many, many, maybe many, uh, many Asian stories will say that there is an encouragement of being like a doctor. Or so it was the same. Yeah, yeah. Be stereotypical, but I think 
because of uh, lifestyle and all of those things that, you know, uh, survival meant being successful and success was often represented by money, income. And there was a perception that if you studied hard and you're smart, that you'll get a good job and a good job would mean that you would get paid well and you could support the family, right? Again, so all of those lined up. But, you know, uh, I could not be a doctor. <laughs> I was so squeamish. Um, and so maybe uh, in wanting to understand more about myself, my mom, my family, I already felt like I was probably an accidental counsellor to something yeah. that mm. I then took into this kind of sort of doctor, but not, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And was that a pathway that I guess your parents approved of? Oh, not really, not really. Yeah. Well, see, my mum still would introduce it as Buxy, like like it would yeah, 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 like a doctor, like a doctor yeah. right? Yeah. But it's not really. Um, yeah. And I think uh, it's funny, it's the profession of psychology, right? Like mm. if you think the uh, originators of some of the ideas in psychology, a lot of them come from men, white men in particular. Yeah. Mm. Even though we can track back the healing profession to shamans and healers mm. from thousands of years ago in all countries in the world, in psychology is Western concept. And mm -hmm. in that sense, uh, a lot of the ideas came from usually older white men uh, from Europe or from America. But then when you go here to Australia, most psychologists who are working, and if I go to university, most psychologists are women. Yeah. And then sometimes there is a sense that if you're too connected with your emotions, it's not uh, it's not a masculine profession, it's not a masculine. Mm. So when you asked me about that, I think that there was a sense of maybe I could have done uh, a job that was more uh, like I'm putting my fingers up, uh, you know, like manly or yeah. thing yeah. like this. So, you know, yes and no. I'm sure that they're proud of me. Uh, yeah. But, you know, like it was not probably their preference for me to have done this role. Yeah, and it's probably not a, a profession that they understand too much about, I would say, at least for my parents. Um, um, even when I started, when I studied in uni, I did like a business, but then I majored in psychology as well. They just completely didn't understand what the psychology part was. And they were like, don't go into that. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Why not, Tracy? Like, well, like, why do you think that was? Well, I think there's just a stigma around it, like, to be completely frank, mm. my dad, the stigma around he's like, oh, you don't want to like, you know, deal with people with mental health issues. It's going to like affect you mentally yeah. as well. Like he was concerned for my well-being. Yeah, that's a good point. That's ex that's actually really consistent. Uh, yeah, with my feeling too. Uh, I think that there is that stigma of the profession, stigma of mental illness broadly. You know, because it seems to if you have a broken arm, right? Yeah or broken leg or something, right? Uh, it's not good to touch wood, but if you did, uh, you go to the doctors and like eight weeks later, you're healed. Yeah. Mm. And even though the concept is not too different with mental health problems, there is the idea that somehow you as a person is now corrupted or- Yeah. And then there is this idea that maybe if you're going to be as a psychologist, that you're going to see dangerous people Mm -hmm. uh, like hurt you or kill you or because it's like oh my gosh what happens if they hear voices or see things or they yeah. think badly and then they start to target you and stalk you and but you know that's our parents worried about us 
Yeah. It's their concept understanding of yeah. psychology. And, you know, in countries like my mom's country, Vietnam, uh, the ethos, the way of living was you worked hard and you came home and you supported the family with your family. Mm -hmm. So psychology, as we understand it here, is very individualistic in, in a sense. It is about you going to see somebody. Yeah. One of my clients once called it was like a voice, uh, like a verbal massage. Right? <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know how my mum would say a massage, right? Like yeah. it feels good for a lot of people. My mum says waste of money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, she, she'd say, no, look, I don't want to put money in a massage. I just buy food, you know, like buy more food or buy, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so, uh, there is a concept that psychology is for, it's almost selfish in a way. Yeah. That they should be more concerned about the family, the group. Yeah. Do is that? Do you feel that it's more? Do you see it more specific to, I guess, Asian cultures, or like the Eastern versus Asian? Is a stigma more inherent in those from Asian backgrounds? And have you seen that change through the years? That's it's interesting. Of course, it's you know things always evolve, always change. Yeah. And and, and I and, and and I'm somebody from two different worlds. You know, like my dad's mm. family and my mom's family, and I can certainly see like. The balance would be like from my my dad's side of the family, uh, they're like, do what makes you happy. Mm. Right? And I know that my mom wants me to be happy too. Mom, if you're hearing, right? Like I know that. <laughs> At the same time, my mom's, I don't know where you call it practical, but the attitude is you, you gotta you gotta do right so that you can support the family later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there is a different, a different direction, different approach. Um, whether it's all I, you know, it's a it's a broad generalization. I don't know, but it's certainly my yeah. experience from what I've witnessed. I think that there is um, a difference between an individualist directive uh, and this need to come together to survive as a family or to get through things. Mm. Perhaps it is the lifestyle, the, the the way that people, you know, like if you have experienced such a significant encounter together, like my mom's family, like many families. And you've survived something together. It kind of brings you together yeah. and help yeah. and support each other. Whereas in Australia, broadly, that's my dog. Does it? <laughs> um, you know, broadly in Australia, so much space around, right? And even though we're going to talk later, maybe about uh, some of the significant and yeah. different issues, but uh, those issues are like there's so much space in Australia. People get Centrelink benefits. Even though you can never argue that Centrelink is perfect for people, like, you know, you can't, but compared to receiving nothing, yeah, you know, if you didn't work in some countries, you died, you know, yeah. you starved. And so there was no government handout necessarily in the same way that Centrelink exists. Mm. The employment services that assist you in getting jobs, there isn't all of these other features. And so in that sense, it was about the family had to come together to support each other. We couldn't rely on anyone else. But in Australia, because the population is smaller, there is structures and support systems in place, you could pursue what it is that you wanted to pursue. Uh, Maslow, you know, when you're doing something. Yeah, Maslow's hierarchy, yeah. I think there was greater opportunity to pursue self-actualization. Yeah. Whereas many other people were still looking at how we survive, how do we uh, keep a roof open. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you see any of these like unfold in the work that you do today with young people? 
Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I see it, but I I suspect that we're probably always seeing generational differences. You know, like I think that if you're if you're born here or you've grown up here in Australia, right? Uh, even if your family don't speak English, right? You still turn on the TV and you watch TV shows. You'll go to school and you'll speak to lots of different people from different cultural backgrounds, but maybe all living in Australia. You have an approach. You'll have social media and you'll be looking at Instagram or TikTok and you'll be watching mm -hmm. a variety of things, right? From all from today. And all of that is foreign to our parents and then their parents and so on. So each generation will have a different way of seeing the world. And that ultimately will cause some level of tension and conflict. And so for many young people, uh, sometimes it's about communicating and uh, this misunderstanding between uh, mm. parents and themselves of what they want to pursue uh, versus what their families or their parents want for them, right? Do, what, so what issues do you specifically see, I guess, affecting young people in your role? So many. Uh, yeah. It's, it's funny that if you ask other generations, yeah. You know, like if I were to interview my mum like you're interviewing me, right? She'd be mm -hmm. like, what do you got to worry about then? Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. You know, like you, you should see me. Like, did you have to get on a boat and travel? Yeah. Yeah. Sit in a refugee camp? I say, no, mum, I didn't. No, I didn't do that. Right? Of course I didn't do it. But it doesn't mean that the challenges that people face today are easier yeah. or yeah. harder. They're just different. And so uh, from my perspective, I've now got that pressure it's a family story it wasn't my lived experience of being in a refugee camp or traveling but it's now my pressure mm. that i internally i've created it myself that feel like i now have to make it worthwhile you know and then when i have kids they'll have a different experience than me right every mm. generation will have a different experience but some of the other issues you know like broadly speaking for young people you have uh this idea of um i mean we talked before when we met around technology mm -hmm. never before even when i was a kid you know uh, msn was just coming in and we all had yeah. like 3310s or something right and yeah. and so in that sense once you left school that was it, it was yeah. and you would go home and you would see your family or or you towards the end you get on msn and you maybe chat to people on msn but it was dial-up computer so it would cost That's money and turn off the computer at some point to save, <laughs> to yeah, save yeah. The download speeds or something but now because you have your phone and you can access technology anywhere everywhere uh you can be on a train a bus anywhere in the world you can go on holiday you can you can't get away it's positive yeah. it's good in terms of networking there's a lot of great things but it's also a lot of pressure so some of the things that we start to see is you've got bullying that extends beyond the school, mm, yeah. the online space, and you've got this pressure and comparison. So young people have always and will probably always compare themselves to each other, right? You go to school and you go, oh, what does they have? How yeah. do they, and what are they wearing compared to me? But then... Mm. then take it away from just the being in school or whatever you see on TV you just have to go scrolling yeah right on tiktok on your phone on instagram and you start to see people from all over the world and then it starts emphasizing what you don't have or what your faults are or what you know and so some of the biggest issues uh that i'm seeing are things like that you know the extension to bullying into the online mm -hmm. space 
the non-stop comparison with others despite there being some positive things as i know i think that there's a lot of good things about it it increases uh, networks social networks for everyone and we're social beings i think there is uh, a lot of challenges confronting young people with that space too uh, mm. maybe that's a good start yeah yeah how how are some of the things that you're doing in your day-to-day helping young people overcome those issues or even just help manage with that kind of ex- level of expectation that they have socially you know um so i have a, a number of different roles and part of them might be in advocating or talking to people like you guys about some of the issues uh, that might be impacting people but if i was in my practice and i was working as a psychologist with people it's amazing the power of either being in a space and listening to somebody you know mm. listening not many people have somebody in their space who listen to them yeah also uh, being able to talk openly directly honestly about a topic uh, it's amazing to me how just being able to talk to somebody it doesn't have to be a psychologist it could be anybody talk to somebody and actually have them listen to you reveals things that perhaps you weren't quite aware of before mm-hmm. if i give you an example right yeah uh you know ever since you guys were born uh, you've been blinking your eyes right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but until i mentioned the fact that you were blinking your eyes you had no conscious awareness of the fact that you were blinking mm. but if you wanted to now you could slow your blinking down or you could yeah. speed your blinking up right you could control what was a few seconds ago completely out of your control because you had no mm. awareness of it yeah and so sometimes as an example raising to your attention talking about things openly rather than hiding them or not thinking about them is the starting point so when you mm. start to see patterns emerging whether they be bullying patterns or patterns in terms of your searching on on uh technology or it might be your patterns of communication with your friends or family members or your parents then it gives you some capacity to then make decisions about what you want to do next i mean the other point about the blinking thing is that it's not that we want you to change how you blink it's yeah. not <laughs> you blink and it's normal to blink right but it is a demonstration of how you could have greater control over your blinking behavior if you wanted to by paying attention to it mm. and so if you then think about sadness or frustration or anger or annoyance if you start to get to know those emotions and you predict them you know when they are about to happen what might cause them a bit like blinking you can't delete them from your system mm. right or should we want to because they serve a purpose for us yeah. they're sometimes helpful they're not good or bad they're just emotions but it might allow us then to understand them more and as a result have a different kind of relationship with those experiences yeah that's that's a great analogy yeah. <laughs> that's oh, a yeah a great analogy so in one of your roles i guess you talk about advocacy so can you tell us what does it what exactly does it mean to be the deputy commissioner of the new south wales mental health commission Thanks for the question. So sometimes I ask myself that question. <laughs> well, what's your so your podcast it's called a seat at our table, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean when you say a seat at the table? What's that phrase normally mean? Well, for us the the where we started was having a seat at the table was such a corporate slang that 
you know, yeah. when exec CEOs talk, they're like, have a seat at the table and you have an opinion. But for us, we're like, we want to create our own table, which is why it's a seat at um, our table. I got and it, it was I just, like yeah. It. <laughs> it's And for us, it's like coming from Chinese, Vietnamese backgrounds as well. Like dinner table also signifies people coming together and I community. Like and yeah, so it was a kind of our interpretation of that phrase. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Uh, to answer your question, I think it's going to be like that. So uh, in mental health, it was my view that I did not have a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. My mum didn't have a seat at the table. That many of my family and the people that I knew didn't seem to have a seat at the table. And that for me, the title or the role means that I have a seat there. Mm-hmm. And that I can talk about the experiences or the things that I think are important. So, for instance, right, 30% of our state in New South Wales, almost 30% of our state in New South Wales are from non-English speaking backgrounds. Yeah. But, you know, until I was uh, in the deputy commission role, oh, you can have a look at the faces of the people in the deputy commission role on the website in the past, like past commissions. I don't have to make a commentary on it. Mm. Uh, there are not many that look like, not any that look like my mom yeah. or people in my community or the people that I'm aware of, the people I grew up with or me. Mm. And so the concerns were still legitimate concerns that they were raising, but they weren't the concerns that I thought were important for me or my mm. family or the people that I saw experiencing mental health problems, right? And so what does it mean? Uh, there is a good example around interpreter use. Yeah. So I'm a private psychologist in the community. A lot of people don't realize, and there is tr- some trials in New South Wales happening now, but only in select areas, not everywhere. Uh, and it only just started happening last year. That if I want to see somebody who doesn't speak English in my practice, then we should have an interpreter, right? But in order to access an interpreter, through tears or one of those services, it would cost either the client $160 an hour or me $160 an hour. So then either the session for uh, my client will cost double that of an English speaker Mm. or cost me so that it would mean I would work for free almost. Yeah, yeah. You see now this is 30% of our state. Yeah. Not just Vietnamese or Chinese or it's every every language other than English. Mm. That means that the wait times for people in that that population, remember mental illness doesn't dis- uh, discriminate. Yeah, They don't say, oh, well, because you're Asian, you don't have to have mental illness <laughs> or because you're whatever. No, everybody has, the, has a risk of getting mental health problems, especially when bad things happen to you in your life. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that 30% of our estate might have to wait long periods of time to access support in not uh, non-government uh, programs uh, was horrible. And one of the things that I really, really wanted to talk about in mental health was how do we uh, support this community of New South Wales who weren't English speakers or had another language other than English, even if, by the way, you speak English, even yeah. if men uh, uh, in other generations speak English, uh, it doesn't mean that you have a good understanding of everything that you talk about like me yeah. right if i go to vietnam now i can barely understand 
some of the things that people are saying. Yeah. But Hanoi is completely different. Like it's mm-hmm. the accent sounds like they're angry at me all the time. <laughs> yeah. You get it? And then if I go to Saigon, I can understand it, but then there are new words that they come up with or different words that I've never heard of before. Like, for example, there was never a word that my mom knew for computer. So they speak half Vietnamese, half English sometimes. Yes. Where they're talking about things and they say Vietnamese, 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 English, English, and so on. Yeah. And so in that sense, I think that interpreters is a significant barrier or language barriers mm. is a barrier, not the only barrier, but a barrier to accessing service. But there are many others that we advocate for in that role. So, for instance, if I look at Vietnam um, during COVID, so many people in my family, they didn't really trust uh, information sources anywhere else. And so they're mm. a WhatsApp family group and they're listening to all the uncles and yeah. the family and they go, oh, well, this must be true because this person said it is true, right? And then the government releases information in translated material, but they use the country flag, right? Mm to demonstrate. So what's the country flag of Vietnam? It's the communist flag. It's a red yeah. flag with a, a star on it, right? Mm. Like, uh, we can't trust them because that's from the communist. And so even though the government are well-intentioned want to translate material, firstly, they translate material into academic Vietnamese, right? Mm. So not readable for, or not all understandable for somebody who has 17-year uh, ability of Vietnamese. Secondly, there is the barrier that they haven't understood, which is the flags and the cultural and political context of the country and some of the people coming here. And this is only one country. What about the other 200 countries represented in Australia? And so I think that when we are looking at mental health and you ask me about um, what the title means, what the role means, it is about having a seat at the mental health table Mm -hmm. and how we provide mental health services to all people in New South Wales, uh, including those people who speak a language other than English. Um, Yeah. I hope that answers the question and incorporated your brand at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. There's just so so much in that that I want to unpack. I I feel like there are, from what I've seen from my parents anyway, who've had to access services like that, it just feels like there's already so many loopholes they have to jump through to get the help they need and then they just ultimately find it easier to just give up Mm. and just not worry about it they're like just sweep it under the rug forget it we'll just deal with it the way that it is what what is it that we can do um as a community to help like break down what are those barriers and those inaccessibility to services that people have you know um i think that part of the answer there is to continue having these conversations yeah You know, if I can uh, draw on our uh, compatriots in a way, like in the LGBTIQA plus community, right? Mm. Uh, Within modern times, homosexuality was in the DSM uh, as a uh, mental illness, a mental health problem. And it was an illegal act. In fact, the origins of the Mardi Gras protest was a protest march, right? Uh, That people were literally arrested now look at it's it's become an accepting community where it's celebrated every year uh it is now uh, i mean by the way it's not saying that it's perfect but can you see the evolution yeah yeah right because people are talking about it mm. understand it uh, understand the community more it's become an iconic tourist attraction mm-hmm. for people all over the world to come to this community and this celebration every year at Mardi Gras. and so i think that with time and 
with a lot of conversations that remove that this is a taboo topic or that we shouldn't talk about it. It's like, uh, it's like maybe I even feel like it's a taboo to bring it, but like it's like death. Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, so as part of my practice, I create a wheel, right? A wheel. A yeah. wheel. Mm -hmm. And the reason for it is because, uh, you know, like you want to know that if something happens, you know, what's going to happen to all of the client, the client mm. notes, right? So it's a part of our, my requirements. You're right. Right. Mom says, why do you make a will? Are you, <laughs> you going to die? You know what? And then my mom says, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to even you yeah. know, think about it when we're 150 years old. Yeah. Right. And I say, yeah, mom, yeah, how many people you know live to 150 years old? <laughs> you see, the thing is, right, uh, death, right, is normal. Yeah. A part of our life. But mm. it is a topic still within many cultures, many human beings. They don't want to think about it. Yeah. There's anxiety about it. There is an unknown. There is fear. But it is a normal part of mm. our lives. And at some point, we all go through it, right? And so it's my sense that, well, why can't we have these conversations about yeah. death? And in fact, Play School did. You know, Play School. Yeah. Uh, you know, they they released uh, an episode, groundbreaking episode, talking to children about oh, death. I know. Amazing. Yeah, it's called Beginnings and Endings, and right. downloaded on ABC iView. But yeah, uh, you know, Play School accepted this idea that we should talk about these topics. Yeah, yeah. And so with mental health, the mental illness is the same. Yeah. Other than uh, not wanting to talk about it, or we keep talking about it, like you guys. Yeah. Are Right. Yeah, that's awesome. On that death thing, I can't even say the word die or death in my household because my mum will do the same. She's like, do not mention, do not even joke about it. Like, don't even talk about it. Yeah. Like, okay. Oh, yeah. do, do you know, I tell you, uh, maybe my mum, but anyway, I'll say it anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, like um, sometimes my mum doesn't like eating, uh, yeah, like, you know, anyway, she, she doesn't eat very well sometimes and she yeah. doesn't eat very much. She doesn't eat. I found a way. I say, hey, mum, if you don't eat, something might happen to me. <laughs> And immediately, immediately she goes, don't say that, don't say that. And then she goes to the fridge, she goes, it eats. <laughs> it eats, right? And so you see, you see, it's, I, I can relate to your experience. There is yeah. like, oh, that's a touchy subject. It's a yeah. no-go no zone. But if it's no-go, right, if we can't talk about those things, yeah, then it ultimately means that nothing changes with them. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. We pass down as though it's something that is... You know, it's like uh, talking about sex, talking about drugs, yeah. talking about uh, death, talking about all these subjects. They're all human subjects. Yeah, yeah. It's my view that we should have transparent, open, respectful conversations. Yeah. Always, as, as many as we can about Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Um, you mentioned, I guess, your role as a deputy commissioner, I guess, traditionally haven't been very diverse. How, how how diverse and inclusive is the industry, like in the mental health industry? What What is your experience like in terms of the workplace? It's, it is it is diverse, but, but it, it could be better. So, yeah. you, you know, we, what we need, I think, is more bilingual therapy, yes. bilingual staff, right? But also I think that um, diversity is not just in cultural background, it's also yes. in profession. So, for instance, you know, in mental health, uh, there is an assumption that uh, if you have a mental illness, you, if you actually do go and get help, you should go to see a GP and then you go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Mm. Well, firstly, there are lots of things that people could do. Uh, for example, exercise, uh, totally reasonable and appropriate evidence-based approach to supporting lots of people with mental health problems. Yeah. 
going for a walk or uh, um, doing something that was interesting. In fact, the origins of occupational therapy as a profession was basket weaving during the war. And they mm. found that, yeah. And so they found that uh, when war, war veterans were recovering in hospital, that when they weren't doing anything, that they were ruminating and that they were thinking about, uh, you know, bad memories and all of these things. But then when they were keeping their hands busy and making baskets, that they got better quicker. And so part of that question, firstly, is the idea that there are lots of approaches to supporting people with mental illness and that psychology and psychiatry isn't the only one. Mm. Part of that is that in, in, in the profession itself, that we need to encourage and support all the cross-section of our community in seeing that this is a viable professional pathway yeah. Can I ask you, Tracy? You said that you studied psychology, but then you took a pathway into marketing. Business. Yeah, right. Uh, what was that about for you, if you don't mind? Um, that's an interesting question. I think when I studied, I always knew I wanted to get into something creative, and I didn't know exactly what that was. But I also thought I really like working with people, understanding how people work, which is why I kind of fell into the space where I did a major in marketing and a major in psychology. And then, I don't know, I think for me, it almost became a, a practical decision. Like functionally, I, yeah, I, I thought business was more stable. I just thought like, that's the path I wanted to pursue. And then it was also the area of creativity in advertising that eventually drew me to it. But as like an interest, I like, I love studying psychology in terms of just as a person. Like you don't have to be a psychologist to understand, like to try to learn more about people, human interactions and things like that. So it's something that I still read books about, but I never, like, I never felt the urge to pursue it as a career. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for saying that. I think that's true for lots of people. And maybe if it's like, um, it's like if you see yourself or you see other people in that role or that career and they talk about it openly, then yeah. consider it more, right? Or it's if you don't see people, then maybe you don't feel like you belong there. Yeah, yeah that that's a good point because I feel like I was probably the only Asian in my class oh. all the time, actually. <laughs> now that I've never thought about it, but now that I, you mentioned it, I mm. never really felt true belonging in that psychology major versus the business mm. side of me. Like in my heart, I was like, I'm a business school girl. <laughs> I'm doing psychology as a side. I don't know whether that, yeah, diversity part comes in a part of it, but I never really thought about it until just then. That's an interesting insight that you have there, Tracy. Yeah. Like, like you know, my wife, she's a, a Zumba instructor, you know? That's cool. Yeah, that's yeah. it's cool. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I go to her, she had this uh, Zumba cruise, right, that she put on. Uh, um, she didn't put on. She, we, she made, made me go to the Zumba cruise. <laughs> that was so fun, a Zumba cruise, like on a boat. Yeah, on a boat. On a boat. <laughs> Uh, for a lot, it sounds amazing. It was not that amazing for me. It was amazing for her, but it was amazing. For uh, I'm not a, a, a particular dancer or mover, right? right? But I tell you, you know, um, if I go to her class, right, uh, and this is her class, I go, I turn up at the class, and there is no guys there. Yeah, there's like uh, you know maybe 20, 25, 30 people in her class, and there are all girls. Yeah. And immediate, it's not like that. It's an uh, only girls' class. Anybody can come, but like yeah. the, mm. there is only only females, right? And I look at it, and I always feel weird. I yeah. always, 
because I'm like, okay, I think I'm like this creep. I'm going to like wait outside. I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when I think about that, I think about what you said about uh, psychology yeah. and looking around your class or looking at uh, like other models of people. Yeah. Look like me or that are like me or have similar experiences to me that have found themselves in positions like this. Yeah. Mm. I think that that's part of the problem. Mm. It's generational, but it's also about opportunity. And we talk about this with race all the time. We talk about it with gender. I mean, there was a, a while, even like 10, 15, if you look at like um, TV shows from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, movies. Yeah. I talk as a non-female, right? Mm. You guys should maybe, maybe, maybe you guys want to say on this, but you know, it's like, um, I wonder about girls looking at opportunities for professions, for yeah. example. And if they're not seeing like, like how many, how many females have gone to the moon, right? None. And so if you're a female versus a male, are you more likely to see as an astronaut as a career? If you've never seen a single woman. Exactly. Yeah. Moon? You know, we're starting to change this by looking at seeing broader diversity in gender and construction roles. Mm-hmm. And the construction industry is doing yeah. there. It's a long way to go, but they're doing some stuff there already. And maybe it is that we need to do the same thing uh, with culture and yeah. cultural representation. Also, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representation yes. in, in psychology. That's a very long response to your question. I hope that I've said something there. No, that was so insightful because I'm now now I'm like I'm having a flashback to university and going. That is probably the reason because when I looked at a pathway in psychology, almost automatically I was like, "That's too hard." But now that I'm thinking about it, maybe because I didn't have any role models in that area that looked like me that I could at least understand, mm. speak to, understand the pathway more. And business just felt like the easier path because we just knew heaps of people in that area. Yeah, it's, it's something Wendy and I talk about as well, especially in our, like Wendy's a designer, I mean, the advertising industry. We yeah. nev- we rarely saw Asian Australians in that space, that creative space, As at least when we were in high school. We were the only two almost in our grade that went into a, a creative yeah. field. Oh, and yeah. Everybody else kind of went into the more traditional, tr- 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 like in quotation marks, traditional pathways yeah. that they saw, like teachers, engineers, nurses, yeah. mm-hmm. and we just didn't know what to expect being in the creative industry because yeah. we didn't have those role models. You, you know, on that point, did you see that movie that just won the Oscar award? Yes. Yeah. One yeah. of my favorite movies. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's a cool movie, right? Did you see, and, and the best supporting actor, right? It's a Vietnamese guy, right? Vinny, yes, yeah. Right? yeah. Anyway, you, you know how they're saying there, right? Like this is the first time in Oscar history that uh, an Asian woman wins the best Oscar. This is in 2023. Yeah. Yeah. 2023. And so if you were uh, an Asian person, right, and you're saying, oh, I wonder whether like being an actress or a movie star is a good role for me. And yeah. look at the night of nights for the entertainment industry in Hollywood. Yeah, uh, you think how many uh, Asians are working uh, now? Even now in 2023, it's not that many. It's a no. lot. Mm. Lots, it's not that many. Yeah. But then you look. Finally, there is a person who's won the Oscar. Yes. Still only now. Yeah. A lot of people assume that oh, we're a very multicultural and accepting country. Mm-hmm. And I think that is partially true. 
we're a multicultural country. And I think that we have a lot of tolerance and acceptance by comparison to lots of other countries. But I still think that there is a long way to go. And that people, I mean, even my dad uh, would see the world differently uh, than my mom, uh, even now, even though my dad has been with my mom for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that idea of representation and seeing examples of uh, our community or other people that look like you. And that's even harder for me because I was kind of didn't really look like yeah. go to Cabramatta, right? Yeah. It's a podcast and nobody can see, but like I would go to Cabramatta <laughs> and, you know, I'd be walking with mom and I'd be taller than everybody else. Yeah. Right. And so I wouldn't look like I fit there. Yeah. As soon as somebody would say something in Vietnamese that I would understand, or I'll go to the counter and I would say a few words, they would be shocked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that shock meant to me, oh, I don't really belong here. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would say, Banyul, or like how much is something or something yeah. just simple, simple. And be like, oh my gosh, you speak Vietnamese? Yeah. Is it because your wife is Vietnamese? Like all, the, all of these things, right? Yeah. And so when you get those messages, you don't feel like they're, they're subtle. They're not mm. uh, uh, racist in that sense. But there are subtle messages that say maybe this is not where you belong or where you should be. And yeah, see this, like my wife and I traveled to Broken Hill and we broke down, right? Uh, it was right after COVID where we wanted to get away when they had the five kilometer. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I remember this guy who used to work for the RAF, the Royal Australian Air Force. Yeah. He, had a, he lived in a mine there and he stopped us to stop the help. And he get out, and one of the things he said to me was, where are you from? And I went, oh, from Penrith. No, he says, no, where, where are you originally from? I said, I'm born here in Australia. Yeah. Now, if I even feel like that, you know, then I don't feel like I belong in this area. No. Yeah. It's right. funny that, like, when you travel to different parts of Sydney, mm. different suburbs, yeah. you feel like, depending on the people that you see around you, just like how you've talked about like an experience in being in Cabramatta, like that could be so isolating and paralyzing in some ways. Like I feel that like when we travel to um, just like take road trips and go to like, (laughs) yeah, like to like the South Coast and you just like, you just have this in the back of your mind that like, oh, I feel like I'm like probably the minority here and I'm the outside, I'm, I'm an outsider, not just like geographically, but culturally as well absolutely absolutely and maybe that is what happens in our professional lives too mm. you know if we yeah. see this in our everyday life and this is what happens to psychology you know like yeah. like i think in in that sense what why do we need diversity now well not only is it representational but it brings different ideas and different ways of working yeah. you know like um uh i i have a a feeling about which has been ingrained in me in a way of uh you know having a respect for your elders yeah even in the language there is a different word uh to use for you know un, like as an older brother or yeah. older mm. like this right like you there is a respectfulness there but some of my anglo colleagues uh they might have different family dynamics but they yeah. don't necessarily have that concept mm-hmm. in the same way that i feel it and so if i saw an older Vietnamese woman or older Vietnamese man that uh, in my clinic, 
not just a young person, there is a way that I have a sense of who they are and there is a respect there that comes that's different to seeing them as another client, another just another client in a way. And so I think that what we need in any instance is diversity of ways of working, diversity of ways of thinking about particular circumstances, uh, understanding of people's stories and how people have gotten to where they are. Yeah. Uh, it's why we need diversity in this area and why we really need to encourage lots more people to consider the mental health sector as a viable career path not a scary one yeah and they can go into nursing or they can go into peer work which is a fascinating area that's expanding in mental health which is all about the um the capitalization of your lived experience Mm -hmm. their paid roles there are all kinds of mental health which i think uh I'd love people to know more about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are there resources like where? Like where would you, if somebody's considering a career mm. in psychology or in that mental health space, like where do you point them to? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe actually, you know, that's a good question. I've got yeah. some ideas, but maybe this is part of it. You yeah. Know? It, what can I ask you guys? Like in design and graphic design, or in business or marketing, like was there mm. a place where you could go to? find out what options were in that field I, don't, I mean I don't know like no not really not really I think like our exposure was like you know how universities used to do like um open days open open days yeah that's what they're called like info days or open days that's what I remember like traveling to the city and then going to yeah. like UTS or UCID and they had open days where you could experience what it's like to be a business student or what it's like to be a designer mm. I feel like that was my exposure to that field but I don't remember mm being prevalent for like Mm. being a psychologist like I don't yeah I think it also like resources for me was like my older sisters Mm. and just seeing them as examples of possibility and what could be done and also like just asking them for advice as mentors as well that in itself was my resource yeah Yeah. and teachers and yeah those school counselors and the teachers what they recommended to me but I think on the flip side even then like the creative industry itself, what we saw as a problem was that there was not much, I guess, advocacy for a creative pathway. And I think because we had each other and we were so hungry for it, yeah. we kind of pushed to try and find opportunities as well. But I understand and acknowledge that not everyone can have that luxury yeah. of having those people around them. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. You know, um, I think maybe it's similar in mental health. Yeah, and perhaps the barrier, the line for people is their conception of what mental health is, like mm. we about earlier, and what those roles might look like, and whether they'll be fun. Uh, is it a sexy role? Is it a sexy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like if I, if I put it in that way, uh, I don't know that that the average person would see mental health in that way because there's not enough stories about it. Yeah, you know, like what does it look like, and is it the same as being an astronaut or a graphic designer mm. or uh, in marketing? You know, yeah. like there are TV shows about advertising yeah. that you could turn on and go, oh, well, look at that show. Exactly. And I think it gives you an idea. The shows about psychology, uh, for example, are often cliched shows of a, 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 a therapist and a couch, you know, almost full. Yeah. And it isn't like that. 
Mm. I mean, there is a great privilege in these roles to come alongside your fellow human being and learn about their lives in a way that perhaps that person might not have shared with anybody in their own life, but they're sharing with you. There is a great honor and privilege in that. Yeah. And that you learn yourself from what that person imparts on you. And you get paid to do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think there has to be more stories that talk mm. about the impact that those that these roles in mental health have. I mean, if you think about, I, I just watched like a series with Steve Carell. Uh, mm. I can't even think of what it's called, but he was like a therapist. Yeah. And the idea of that show was that he was kidnapped by his patient and locked in the basement. <laughs> and the patient was a serial killer. Yeah. I mean, was it interesting? Sure, it was interesting. But like, if you're like sitting, are you going, oh, man, that sounds like a really interesting job to do. <laughs> yeah. and look at what happens, you know. And you just recount, like in your, if you look around, you see, well, what kinds of roles exist on movies or TVs? And yeah. Like scary roles. Yeah. Interesting, but scary. Whereas if I watch like the Gruen Factor or Gruen Trans- Yeah, you're like, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. It looks cool, right? Like it yeah. looks interesting. Yeah. Oh, well, I get it. Like it makes sense. You're finding out what people want. Like it, there, there, it makes sense to people. Yeah. It doesn't make sense mm. to a lot of people what uh, people in the mental health sector are doing. Yeah. yeah. So what, what is your favorite part about being in the mental health sector and what you do? Well, I think. I think that uh, the opportunity that I just mentioned to you, yeah. you come alongside your fellow human being mm. and hear stories that perhaps you would never have heard before. Mm. You never have seen. And you could you start to understand more about yourself, mm. and more about people in the world and how they have lived. You, I think from my view, it's it's taught me that there is no one right way or wrong or wrong way of seeing things or doing things, that there are many different different views, different perspectives, yeah. and that people often have a reason for why they do things. Yeah. They might not know what they are, but there is one, they're, that they're getting a need met in some way. And I think that that's been really, really important for me. And, and then I think about the rewarding... The, the magic moments, you know? Like I saw a young woman uh, a couple of weeks ago who was 15 years old and uh, she could have looked like she was 11 or 12 years old. Mm -hmm. She was so thin and small. She had an emerging eating disorder. Yeah. And her mother had brought her in uh, and she was really, really nervous. And when we sat down together, uh, she sat where you guys are, but she was like facing the corner, right? Mm. Like office, not towards me. Yeah. And then I said to her, hey, uh, you know, I said her name and I said, do you have any pets? And she said, oh, yeah, I've got this uh, dog named Chanel, right? This little cathedral named Chanel. Yeah. And uh, then I said, oh, well, that's so cool. How did you? And she says, oh, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Mm. So I got this dog, Chanel. I said, can I show you my dog too? And so the magic, right? 
she turned to my desk and looked at my laptop to see the dog and mm -hmm. she started to smile because you know what as fellow humans together we just connected because we both had dogs my dog's named pikelet and, <laughs> and her dog was chanel the other thing there was that her mom with respect to her mom and everybody else in her life were really worried about her so almost every conversation was about something that was bad or wrong mm -hmm. and the first thing that we talked about was her dog and her dog was one of the most special most important things in her whole world yeah, yeah. so the magic was that connection mm. that for at least her and for me that in that moment somebody was listening to her yeah. and what was going on and that was the privileged role that i was in that i just happened to be that person and even though they spoke English, that I could become a translator for the mum, mm. support her in understanding her daughter. You know, like she would say, I asked her about her music and she said, oh, I really like Lana Del Rey, which, you know, I don't really remember a lot of the names of artists. So I yeah. didn't know what she showed me. And there was some song that was like about disappearing or something. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what it's called, something about this. But I, I asked her and she goes, no, I'm not thinking about dying or any, because like everyone was like, oh, you're listening to that song because it's about. Kind of psychoanalyze her. Yeah. Suicide yeah. or something yeah. like that. She was, it wasn't the point. She was looking for ways of understanding her own self. Mm. And so if I, you know, in just that one example, and there are many hundreds of examples you talk about what's important about this role or you ask me what you know what do i love about it? it's that it's mm. being able to see somebody not for only their the problems and the issues that are going on but somebody as a full human a full yeah. person with experiences uh that have some have been amazing experience some have been less amazing but the fact that people are in front of us alive and in our office or talking with us means that whatever they have done, no matter how many consequences or whatever has occurred, it has helped in some way. Because if it hadn't, they wouldn't be here. Yeah. Mm. Mm. On the flip side, what's your least favorite thing? <laughs> oh, least. I, I don't know if I have a least favorite thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, that sounds weird, but I, I mean, like, <laughs> that's a hard one. I, mm. I don't think that I have uh, a least favorite part of the role because you know i mean i would say that i'm more of an introvert i don't like large groups mm -hmm. and i really um i'm not a big personal fan of like small chat mm. you know like uh, what do they call it like uh, is that what they say small chat you know like small talk small talk, small talk, yeah. small talk. Yeah. you know like um yeah how's the weather you know that yeah. kind of, all that kind of stuff uh i want to like talk about meaningful stuff mm, yeah and so I suppose what I, I mean, this is the profession I love because of that, that you can have meaningful and important conversations mm. with people and privileged roles uh, that allow you this kind of inside, uh, insider knowledge or something on, on what's happening for people. I don't really have a least favorite. Yeah. Are, there, are there any like myths that people have of your profession that aren't true, that annoy you or, you know? <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, heaps, you know, and they're often perpetuated by Hollywood, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Like, yeah. um, I mean, even the one that I told you about before, you know, I've been to Freud's house in the UK and yeah, oh, really? wow. <laughs> and you can go, like people can go, uh, that, yeah. can go to like Freud's house and you can see the original couch, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, like there are literally like 400 different types of, uh, ways of practicing psychology. Mm. Well, that's a lot. You know, if you have a look at, uh, you know, Beyond Blue, yeah, have a book that's free that you can download online. Okay. It says um, something like uh, um, tips for depression, or you know, like they list a whole bunch of strategies for if you have depression. And there are like a hundred pages in the book with like things literally like rock climbing uh, in there as a as an approach, as well as lots of others. So, like, yeah, so many. And you know. Um, being on a couch is not one of it. In fact, they list massage therapy, they list aromatherapy, <laughs> all of these other things like food, eating food, you know, like all pets, everything uh, in 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 the in the guide. And I think when you talk about like um, like a fallacy or like something that is prepared, it's like as though there is only one way uh, that psychologists operate. Mm. it requires you to come in and talk about your deepest darkest secrets or to talk about your childhood in some way or just to lie on a couch i mean these kinds of ideas whilst some people might like them they might go wow that sounds really cool there are a lot of people who go oh my gosh it's the last thing that i want to do i, mm, I don't yeah. and so maybe it is the idea that there is one version or one way of doing psychology or getting mental health support but in fact there are many many options i'll tell you about the the, the animal pet space thing as an yeah. example see nobody would know that this was an approach one of my favorite topics right as on uh, pet space which we co-created with young people at headspace uh, headspace pen mm -hmm. this project right was that we were going to teach young people how to help animals who experience distress in partnership with the RSPCA, mm -hmm. right? This is a mental so health cool. program. And so, you know, like in Yaguna, they have an RSPCA yeah. program, and you know, there are a lot of people don't know this, but you know that they have an admissions center for self-harming parrots. What? what? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of tragic, but it's also, oh. right? Um, but here, right, uh, parrots live to like the age of a hundred years. Yeah. Uh, mm. You know, macaws or like cockatoos, you know, things yeah. like that. parents live human years, a hundred yeah. years, long time, like longer than dogs. Yeah. yeah. Often when they're taken as pets uh, in Australia, they're often taken when they're children, they're young, uh, like babies. And some people don't know how to look after the parrots. And so if their environments are not stimulating and when they're owners, also parrots mate for life, which is mm. not Future. and when they don't have a companion parrot they then develop an attachment with their owners yeah so when their owners go out to work or school or whatever they become lonely yeah ruminate and they start to sometimes self-harm by plucking oh their fangs during yeah. their teenage years and so what would happen then if we uh found a group of young people who were self-harming or cutting and we connected them up with cockatoos and other birds who were self-harming mm -hmm. we don't have and we taught them so firstly it normalizes it and says well look uh cockatoos also self-harm and there are yeah. reasons behind it 
but we could teach them how to support the parrots. And in so doing that, they also learn about how to support parrots. They learn how to help themselves because the approaches are similar. And they get a certificate from TAFE for a statement of attainment in animal enrichment studies. And so you see that as an example. And we do that with dogs who are angry and aggressive dogs, you know. Mm. And we did it with hamsters and turkeys and lots of different things. Yeah. You see, a lot of people think when they think mental health support, they don't go, oh, maybe we'll go to the RSPCA mm. and start working with dogs. Whereas that is a legitimate mental health program. It's yeah. not just mm. about counseling or psychological intervention, right? Yeah. So interesting. Also <laughs> sounds quite fun. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. You probably talked through a few of them um, today, but have there been any significant moments in your career that have shaped who you are today? Oh, um, yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, I mean, obviously, I talked a lot about my early life, and that's kind of really what shaped and got me into this role. But mm-hmm. I suppose um, when when I first started in psychology, uh, there was this kind of obsession this profession had with cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. which is maybe similar to what we were just talking about this yeah. one type of way of working and yeah. if i'm honest i found it to be personally boring mm. when i was doing it in supervision with um uh, young people at the time maybe it was partly because i thought it was boring but i did feel like it really allowed us to connect or yeah you know, uh work and there was this um uh, this guy named David Epstein, who uh, co-invented narrative therapy, yeah. story-based therapy, right? about stories. And he wrote a book with Michael White, an Australian, uh, called Narrative Means to Therapeutic Ends. And I read that, and it was like, my gosh, I could actually, you know, I could, I could make this work. It was yeah. about co-authorship, co-creation, mm-hmm. being able to have fun and collaborate with your uh, with your clients and the people that came uh, looking for support. It meant that we weren't the experts, that our clients were the experts, mm-hmm. that we together collaboratively in coming towards a solution. So I think finding that and reaching out to David and his really kind of mentored me a great deal over the years. I tended to find that that was a real turning point for me. I was on the way out and I thought, I don't know why I got into this role. Yeah. But for me, when it was about being able to hear somebody's story, and that that mattered, and that we could come up with our own type of therapy, you know, like in a Japanese tea, tea ceremony, right? Yeah. You know why they're so? Have you have you ever done it? Have you ever done? I've, a, I've done I've done one in Japan like yeah. a long time ago. <laughs> that was a good. It was great. It was amazing. I, it was yeah. Well, they, they do that. They're very careful with um, how they place the cup and like yeah. all the different things, right? Because the idea of the philosophy is that uh, this is a moment in time that's precious and that will never be repeated again. Yeah. Mm. If, you know, Tracy, Wendy, uh, you both and I met tomorrow, right? Yeah. Same questions and we talked about the same thing. It would just be different. Yeah. Yeah. Real different. It would be informed by whatever happened this afternoon, what happened. Yeah. And so the moments never reoccur in the same way again. And so I think it is that idea of um, being in that moment, present with that person Mm. in front of you, being able to lean into their experiences and their stories in life rather than necessarily a manualized robotic way of treating something. 
yeah. here is one way of doing it. Here, you take this and do this. And yeah. You'll feel better kind of idea, right? Yeah. What about us as like individuals? How can we support like those around us who may be going through mental health struggles? Yeah. Do you know, I think, I don't know about you guys because you guys are interviewers, right? Uh, sometimes when people talk to us, then in our head immediately we start coming up with stuff that we want to say. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really important sometimes just to listen. Yeah. Not try and solve the problem. Not try and jump in. I mean, who am I to, you know, like if I've, I've, I've only met you guys uh, once before, right? Yeah. You said something that was going on for you. How disrespectful of it, you know, would it be for me to start jumping in and say, oh, you should just do this. Or yeah. Do yeah. I don't know anything about your life. Yeah. And so even with friends and family, I think uh, maybe not be so quick to jump in and to listen, but listen, listen meaningfully, listen mm. to hear what they're saying. And then reflect it back. Say, hey, I hear what you're saying. I hear it. I hear yeah. it. Tell them that you let them know that you hear it. I, that's, a lot of people ask me that question. I would say that that's one of the key important things. Yeah. It's people, also the hardest thing I feel like to learn to listen. Like <laughs> the skill of listening is so difficult. Uh, I, I tell you, you know, you know, like um, if I go and meet with my mom, I'm going to get in trouble for my mom now. Hey, <laughs> not advertising for my mom, right? <laughs> I'm kind here. No, yeah. that's all right. Mom, I love you. Okay. <laughs> um, if I go, you know, there's one person in my life that I'm pretty calm usually, but there's probably like, like my mom will start saying something, which I, in my head, it'd be like, oh my gosh, it's so wrong. It's <laughs> so not correct. That's so not true. And all I can hear is my own voice Yeah. saying, all right, how am I going to defend this position? How am I going to yeah. do this? Mm. Or even like, even basic one, like I'll go, hey, mom, you want to go for a walk? And yeah. my mom's like, oh, it's uh, too cold outside. I'll get a jumper. Oh, then it'll be too hot. I'll hold it. Uh, but then oh, I don't want to bother you. Then, <laughs> how about we go for a drive? Oh, it costs too much petrol. And then just over and over again. And in my head, I can see like I'm hearing all the solutions and yeah. all the things that I'm thinking. I try and ground myself. Yeah. I go, Daniel. You're doing it again. <laughs> Just be quiet. Yeah. Just listen to what your mom's saying. Mm. And often when you listen, you start to realize, well, actually, she's not angry. She's she's just caring. You know, like when my mom comes in and points out all of the dirt everywhere in my house, <laughs> dust here, there's dirt, you know, all of this stuff. You know, she always says, oh, you know, uh, I mean well. And you don't want me to lie, do you? You know, you, yeah. want, me, you want me to be honest with you, right? And so I hear underneath it, uh, if I can ground myself to be a bit more quiet with my own thoughts instead yeah. of wanting to jump in to defend why I've had no time to clean all of the dust of everywhere. It's <laughs> to say that I hear that my mom loves me and that my mom cares for me and that I can hear that her language for love is her concern that I'm living in a comfortable environment that's clean and all of these things. And so when you ask me what could we each do, it is uh, a challenge to ourselves. Mm. Notice when it is that we're wanting to jump in and say the next thing, yeah. or to defend or to argue back, or to hear. You know, I, I want us to hear, listen, listen mm -hmm. with our hearts openly. Yeah. 
in here what's really being said yeah yeah that's a great one and how about people who want to seek help but don't know where to start like what would you yeah advise to them yeah that's a, a look i think that people uh who make the first step and call something i mean they're brave it's yeah. a brave, there is a courage there it's never easy particularly when you want to make that first call or go to somebody uh i would just encourage anybody to pick up that phone go with a friend mm. if you have an ally or somebody that you trust or you lean into in your life go with them mm. you know like going to the gym i don't always feel like going to the gym but if i go with somebody else then i feel like oh well, okay well we'll go right yeah and mm. I think it will be easier to know that it's never easy i don't think to go to see a stranger for the first yeah. time talk to them about things that are on your mind but it is to um be courageous to be mm -hmm. brave to at least turn up and yes yeah. looking more forward into the future what are you excited um about the future of the mental health space i think that we're always evolving in anything that we do and i think that you you know all of us can already see that we're you know that the, that we're working really hard on looking at how we reduce stigma and uh we're having more and more conversations about mental health and we're um normalizing it yeah validating people's experiences uh, who have mental illness mental health problems and so i think in that sense i'm excited looking forward to this becoming uh a normal health issue maybe those aren't the right words right but like they're my words anyway yeah you know like a like a a normal topic to talk about yeah right? that isn't a scary topic yeah mm. uh that that is an important human topic to yeah. talk about our experiences that's one i think that there are lots of advances in the mental health sector i think that there is a lot of ways that technology is coming in and supporting the evolution of mental health care uh so for instance you know, lots of services prior to COVID, and people had to really basically come in person only. Yeah. And now uh, look at us. I mean, we're recording this yeah. uh, and we're having this conversation. It's clear, it's crystal clear. Yeah. I can see both of you, you mm -hmm. know, like, mm -hmm. like that's amazing. Yeah. And if you think about in psychology, right? Prior to COVID, uh, to see a psychologist, you had to be in person. Yeah. Uh, if you wanted bulk build or you had to live in a remote or rural area where you couldn't access a psychologist from a certain distance but now everybody can access it online mm -hmm. and so things like that uh they're looking at avatar or um you know like avatar based therapies mm. uh, they're looking at online kind of like uh, virtual virtual therapies mm, yeah uh, virtual online therapies where you can take on a role a bit like playing a game or something yeah. like that. Mm experiment and explore different ways of tackling uh, uh challenges anxiety challenge you know yeah right. so many really cool things happening in yeah. this space. yeah yeah watch this space a lot of exciting yeah. things happening yeah um so how we normally wrap up our episodes is we do these three quick fire get to know you questions um <laughs> very fun questions hopefully that will fire at you to wrap up our episode so yeah. the first question is if you weren't a psychologist what would you be doing right now oh i think i'd be a tour guide oh 
<laughs> okay, I love that. That's a great one with the umbrellas, the walking tours. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. I, well, I kind of see psychology in that way anyway. Mm. I think that there is something about being able to share share with a group of people yeah. you know, something kind of amazing about a place. Yeah. Like mm, a, nice. like I kind of like that. Anyway. Like, like that. Cool. <laughs> That's great. Second question is, what's your favorite thing about your two cultures? Oh, well, I love the fact that uh, it gives me a great deal more understanding and tolerance uh, of lots of different areas. I think that it makes me feel uh, richer, that I've got a, a lot of complex depth to who I am and what informs my ideas about the world. And mm. I, I, I love the food. I love the fact yeah. that even though I sometimes don't feel like I quite fit, maybe it's like I'm a tourist. <laughs> <laughs> there's yeah, a theme here <laughs> yeah, there's a theme yeah i i don't know if i've quite answered your question there it's a great one um but maybe i'll think about that a little bit more but that's yeah. definitely part of it yeah. awesome and the last question if you were to bring any dish to a potluck dinner what would you bring oh potluck dinner um that's a good question there's so many things <laughs> do you know there is something that I really miss once my grandma, but I don't know what it's called. There, you know, a new year, like yeah. uh, new year. Yeah. There is a, a meal where they have like, um, it's really soft, like beef in a soup. And then there is eggs that almost like, like rubber. Oh, like tutkor. Is that what it? No. Maybe. I don't know. Like maybe braised, braised pork. No. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's like pork. Yeah. Braised yeah. Pork. And there's a special yeah. egg. Yep. Anyway, my grandma used to cook it all the time every new year. Yeah. And it smelled amazing. And nobody's quite able to cook it exactly the same way. She's uh, popped mm. the same way. If I could find that that recipe, <laughs> never wrote it anywhere, that's what I would bring. That's um I, I really miss miss yeah. that. Yeah, when I think about that. Yeah. Amazing. That's beautiful. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps up our episode. Thank you so much, Daniel, for talking with us and spending time on your, you know, Saturday morning with us. It was really, really informative and really, really insightful conversation. And I think there's a lot to think about. Oh, that's that's really great. I'm I'm so glad to meet you both. And I thank yeah. you both for your time as well and your interest in this topic. It's such an important topic. And I'm glad that we're talking about it whatever day of the week it is yes thank yeah. you and we'll put your links to you know website everything in our show notes as well and any resources that you might have we'll put in there as well but yeah thank you again for joining us thanks so much thank you, thank you. see you awesome. bye